Thank you so much, Shaylee. We see John and Shaylee every Friday night at our Camp Verde study, and they often um, sing for us there, lead us in singing. But we always hear John, <laughs> and we don't really hear Shaylee, so that was just so beautiful. I had no idea you had all that in you. <laughs> so thank you for sharing it with us. Well, ladies, I just want to tell you that um, I'm a little bit intimidated <laughs> with this crowd because you, you all are so special to me. But I was thinking if we could add up the cumulative years of how, how long the ladies in this um, building have studied the Word of God, it would be like going to the hundreds or thousands or the bazillions. I'm not even really sure. <laughs> but I just respect all of you for your uh, love for the Lord and for your hunger for God's Word. And I thank you for being here today with us. So we are going to uh, teach along the lines of the theme that Jean chose for this conference, the battle for the soul, winning or losing the battle for the soul. And Alastair McIntyre said this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I can answer the first question, what story or stories am I myself a part of? We know what story we are a part of. We are, the we are a part of the greatest story ever told. We are a part of this story, and it is a true story, and it is a story that is, it is worth surrendering your life to because it is the most amazing story. And we know that in this story, God, who created our eternal soul and died to rescue us from this fallen world, from the desolation of sin, he left us with a map and a compass so that we could navigate through this world as a victor and not a victim. We know what we are to do because we know who we are. We are children of God. We are the body of Christ. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. More than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And none of these things that we are, we are in ourself. We are just a fallen creature in ourself. But we have so many spiritual riches in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Shaylee said, we just come to you this morning and just want to sit at your feet as our teacher. I just pray, Father, that you would help me to step aside so that the Spirit of God has room to work because we know that it is the Spirit of God who truly teaches us and that it is the powerful one that can renew our minds and transform our lives. So we just ask a very simple thing of you today, Lord, Teach us what you want us to know. And as we walk out into the world, help us to apply those things. And Father, we know that you have created our body, but our body is just for a short time, but our soul is eternal. And you are really, uh, that is the valuable part of us. And you want it, Father, to be beautiful for your glory. So work that work in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So ladies, I know that... Um, that I love to teach like a passage of scripture and just go verse by verse through a passage, but we have a topical study today. So we're going to be looking at several passages of scripture and I would like you to open to, with me first to Genesis chapter three. The story that we are a part of has a victor and that victor is the Lord Jesus Christ. But that story also has an enemy an adversary, the devil, the one who wants to make desolate our soul, the one who wants us to lose the victory and play the victim. 
And you know, in Genesis chapter three, we have the fall and you all are very familiar with the fall, how the serpent approached Eve. He approached her with lies and deception. She fell for those lies and for that deception, she ate the fruit, she gave to her husband to eat the fruit. And then he, he um, sin entered into the world. You know the story. I want to point out to you in Genesis chapter three, starting in verse 14, the curse that God put on the man and the woman and on the serpent because of that fall. The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Still speaking to the serpent, and I will put enmity, that means hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then, Adam, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you are taken and you are dust and to dust you shall return. There's a few things that I want to point out to you in this passage, and the first one is in verse 15. I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman. And there seems to be in this curse of a special enmity, a special hostility directed from Satan to the woman. We see it in Genesis chapter three, we see it throughout the scripture, and I think we see it in our life, don't we? in the world that we live in, how many times is the heart and the soul of a woman targeted by abuse, by so many things that this world just wants to make cheap things out of us, when to God we are very valuable, precious things by his grace. So the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way. God said there would be a perpetual struggle between Satan and mankind. It would be between Satan and the woman and their prospective offspring. Her offspring first came, then mankind at large. Finally, Christ and those belong, those who belong to Christ. So what do we see? That this perpetual struggle is alive and well on the face of the earth today, and we are a part of that struggle. Just as we have a victor that plays on our, our side, we have an enemy and an adversary. Right up to the moment that Christ cried from the cross, it is finished, Satan's efforts were focused on preventing the promised seed from coming, preventing Messiah from coming. But after the cross, his efforts are focusing on keeping unbelievers out of the kingdom of God and attacking the health and well-being of my soul and your soul. That's what he is targeting today. We can only win this battle and overcome this enmity and hostility through faith in the person of Christ and faith in the word of God. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. And you know, ladies, I, I, um, I always struggle to be 
humorous, I guess. Sometimes it's nice in the middle of a Bible class to have a little bit of humor. Um, but, you know, as a teacher, we kind of have to go along with the, um, not the weather, but go along with the, uh, the, the scriptures that we're looking at. And we're talking about a battle for the soul, so it's going to be a little bit intense. 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's a, long, it's a long story, but I'm going to read it to you and just follow along with me. It was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. Being her half-brother, he was not allowed to propose marriage or to have a marriage. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab, Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came in, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent to the house for Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down, and she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach, my shame? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she, he violated her and he lay with her. See how tender and persuasive Tamar tried to be, and yet Amnon was just such a brute. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had, lo with which he had loved her. You see the enmity, the hostility. And Amnon said to her, get up and go away. But she said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away is even greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had on a long sleeve garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. And Tamar put ashes on her head, a sign of mourning, and tore her long sleeve garment which was on her, and she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. So here is a woman who has been devastated. This word desolate means to to be um, insulted, to be laid low, to be devastated, to be deflowered. And Absalom's words were basically in the vernacular that we would choose today, sit down and shut up, woman. And I would say that she was a victim, wouldn't you? She was overpowered by a stronger man. She was a victim of rape. And if you have ever been robbed, your person, your house, your car, you feel like a victim. If you ever been physically or sexually, even emotionally or verbally abused, you can feel like a victim. And that's what Tamar felt. She remained desolate in her father's house. But wait a minute. Absalom, her brother, did not help. Go in, woman, sit down and shut up. There's no cure for your desolation. But she is the daughter of the king, right? She is the daughter of King David. So we would think that King David would swoop in and take care of this princess daughter and somehow minister to her, somehow encourage her, somehow help her to get on a road of healing. But what did David do? Verse 21. Now, when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. And we know that the word of God never tells us all of the details in a story. We have to speculate on some of them. But from what I see from this passage, I don't think David did swoop in and do anything to heal his little princess daughter, Tamar. And her brother certainly didn't. And by the statement, she was desolate in her brother's house. I think she remained that way. But ladies... She had no escape from her desolation, but we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he does care about us. He does rescue us from being a victim. He can lead us in victory through his word, through his love, and through his grace. And I know that we all have been victims at some time in our life, but we don't want to stay there. So we're going to look at some passages in scripture that teach us how to deal with this. Through the love of Jesus, we can be more than conquerors in this battle for the health and the well-being of our soul. So what is the path to victory? Just a second, I'm going to have to find where I am in my notes. Uh, Jean mentioned that we were studying the book of Esther in our ladies' study at Living Truth Prescott. And last week, Sharon, it was Sharon's turn to teach, and she read Deuteronomy 20 and verse 4. Listen to the words of this verse because they are so perfect for this morning's study. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. The Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight with you against your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to give you the victory. I love that verse. Turn with me to Psalm 107, and we're going to look at some things that our King teaches us we can do, we can embrace in our life to have a path to victory. I originally was going to teach the whole Psalm 107, and I spent last Saturday studying and looking into it, and I just came up with one roadblock after another after another. So I had to wait until the Spirit of God showed me a different way to go. But I didn't want to throw out this portion, Psalm 107, verses 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. 
and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the south. I love this verse, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When we know that the Lord is good, when we understand his loving kindness, we are supposed to live it out in our life. And sometimes that takes a voice. We have to share that voice with other people, whether it's other people in the body of Christ or unbelievers that don't know his loving kindness. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Do we ever doubt the goodness of God? And Tina, if you don't mind, I just want to use a story that you shared with me years ago. Her husband, Tim, who is here at the conference, was very sick. How many years ago? And they didn't know if he would live or die. So Tina gathered her four sons together and she said, this is what we're going to do. We are going to decide ahead of time, no matter what happens to your father, we are going to decide the Lord is good. Wasn't that a wise thing to prepare them ahead of time? Whether he lived or whether he died, we would not question the goodness of God. And no matter what we are going through, that is something that we cannot question. There are not many absolutes in life, but that is an absolute. The Lord is good no matter what happens in our life. And then it says he has uh, or his loving kindness is everlasting. And I just want to talk about this word loving kindness for a moment. It's used 248 times in the Old Testament. It is most often translated loving kindness, but it is also translated loyalty, devotion, faithfulness, favor, loveliness, and mercy. And I want all those things. And I have all those things because of the loving kindness of my Lord. And this is the love that Jeremiah spoke of in Lamentations 3 when he observed the desolation of Jerusalem. And so the next passage that we will turn to is Lamentations 3. I like for you to see these passages, my sister's calling, with your own eyes. I wish I could just turn her on speaker because she needs to hear all this. (laughs) That's why she called it this time. Lamentations chapter three, Jeremiah observed the desolation of Jerusalem. His beloved Israel was being destroyed. Jerusalem was being destroyed. I can't imagine the things that he saw, but he describes for us in Lamentations chapter three, how it felt, the emotions that he felt, the devastation that he felt. I'm going to start in verse 10. He is to me speaking of the Lord. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. That is the same word spoken of of Tamar in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Jeremiah 2 says, he has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts, I have become a laughingstock to all people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood and he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust and my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. 
This is called the Book of Lamentations because he is lamenting. It is in limping meter, speaking of a, a desolation of soul, a devastation of soul. And all of these emotions he's feeling because what he has seen with his eyes. But then he says in verse 19, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Remember just a few verses earlier, he had lost all hope. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses, kessed. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I love this passage. And I have used this passage so many times in my life. As Jeremiah is in the middle of devastation, he thinks about the loving kindness of God. And he says, I cannot stay there. I cannot stay devastated. I cannot say, stay desolated because my God loves me so much. My God is such a faithful and loyal God. And when he remembers that, he is delivered into a place of victory. Now, you know, memories can be a wonderful thing, but they can also be a very difficult thing to deal with, can't they? Good memories you just wanna hold on to, you wanna cherish. Sometimes my phone comes up with like, a, I don't know how it does it, but comes up with these, you know, like, look at these pictures today. And you press on it and like my mind goes back to, you know, being somewhere wonderful in the world with somebody that I love, or maybe just right here. And those are good memories. And I take some time just to look at those pictures that Google or whoever sends me, I don't know who does it. <laughs> but bad memories are sometimes hard to deal with, aren't they? So I have found several times in my life that when my mind goes back to a time when I did feel very desolated and I start to have those feelings and I start to become a little um, under oppressed by them, this passage works. If you remember the bad memories, you can't get out of that spot. But if you remember how God delivered you out of that or how God delivered you through that, you have hope. You can spin around in praise like that princess, can't you? Because this works, the loving kindness of God. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Embrace his loving kindness. Lamentations 3. The next passage we are going to look at is Isaiah chapter 53. And this is another just precious passage in the word of God. You probably are familiar with it. But what I want you to see from this passage as you turn to it is that Jesus walked the path of victory before us. He knows how to lead us in that victory because he walked the path before us. He is totally familiar with everything that we have ever gone through, everything that we have ever felt. Some things may never have happened to him. If you are married and your husband has cheated on you or betrayed you, he didn't experience that because he was never married, but he knows what betrayal feels like. If you have ever had a certificate of cancer and you know that death looms over you, as far as we know, well, he never had cancer, but death loomed over him. So the experience may not be something that Jesus personally walked through, but the emotion of it, the effect of it on his heart and on his soul, he experienced it all. And you know, it would take more than the women gathered in this room to have every emotion 
experienced. And yet Jesus in one lifetime experienced that. An amazing Savior that we have. So again, Deuteronomy 24, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory because he has walked the path before you. Let's look at Isaiah 53. In verse one through three, we are going to see that he is the man of sorrows. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. A man of sorrows. He was a common looking man. There was nothing about his physical appearance that would draw people to him. And yet we know that at times thousands were drawn to him. What was it about him? The anointing of the spirit, the beautiful soul that he had, the love and the care that he had for people. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And they knew that Jesus cared for them. It was not his outward appearance, but his inner person that drew people to him. And he was acquainted with all sorts of sorrows. He grew up before like a tender shoot out of parched ground. He was born at a time when Palestine was ruled by the Romans. It was a dry time in their history like a dry time that we are going through. And yet he came up as a tender shoot to deliver his people. And then I want you to see that he was also in this passage, the man of sorrows, but he was also the outcast savior. When he came into this world, where was he born? With pomp and circumstance and all of those things? No, he was born in a barn, in a stable. His cradle was a feed trough, no place for him in the inn. John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus himself said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He was a stranger in this world. He was an outcast savior. And yet he paid the substitutionary sacrificial death for us. Some commentaries say that Isaiah 53 is actually the first gospel because it is the most complete description of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the most complete description of what he did for each one of us. Verses one through three, the man of sorrows. In verse four through six, he is the stricken substitute. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now something popped out of me in these verses and maybe you already knew this principle, but I don't think I did. I've always known that Jesus on the, on the cross bore my sins. He died there in my place. He looked at me, so to speak, on the cross, and he said, no, I don't want you to go through that death. Let me take you down, and I will take your place. And he hung there for me. And I've known since I was a believer that he died there for my sins. 
but I didn't really realize until studying Isaiah 53 here that he also carried my griefs. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. So he knows everything that we have gone through because he is there to carry it, to experience it for us, to live through it before us so that we could follow him in the path to victory. He is the stricken substitute. Verses seven through nine, he is the silent lamb of God. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The important thing here is that Jesus willingly laid down his life for the sheep. He was not led away or carried away against his volition. He was in total agreement. He said when he prayed in the, in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. May this cup pass over me. But if I have to go through this cup, let it be the Father's will. He went willingly to the cross and he never cried out through all of the torture that he endured, which was gruesome, very gruesome. He was the silent lamb of God until God put upon him the sins and the griefs of you and I. And then he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was the first time through all that suffering that that huge, enormous cry came out of the heart of Jesus, the silent lamb of God. Whatever condition of soul we may face, Jesus faced it before us. And so as we look at these verses, verses one through nine, we've read these verses, I want a little bit of help from you ladies. What emotions do you see here that the Lord Jesus carried for us? What words do you see? You can... You can, you can tell him. He was obedient, yes. Sorrow. Crushed. Anguish. Shame. Afflicted. Despised. Wounded. Oppressed. Crushed. Chastised. Hated. Have any of you ever experienced those things in life? Oh, yeah. (laughs) He experienced them before us, and yet he won the victory for us. And he walked that path so that he could lead us in victory. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Spurgeon said, Affliction emptied his quiver upon Jesus, making his heart the target for all conceivable woes. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, 
and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What I want us to see from this passage is in verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty or the spoils with the strong. This is speaking of Jesus. Who does he divide the spoils or the booty with? Me. Yes, who said that? <laughs> Absolutely, Carrie. And with every single one of us, we can all just cry out me. <laughs> because isn't it amazing here that he calls us the strong when sometimes we feel so weak, but we know that when we appropriate, appropriate all of his grace and all of his truth, we are spiritually strong. And he shares the, he divides the spoils or the booty of his victory with us. So what does he share with us? He shares his holiness. He bought holiness for us on the cross. And isn't it an amazing thing that he would share that with us? Second Corinthians 5.21, the greatest trade-off ever. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness or the holiness of God in him. He shares his holiness with us. And we have that positionally. We will have that forever in heaven, but we also have it here on earth, the imputed righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. And we strive to live in that holiness, don't we? He shares his position. We are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. We always say, you know, when you're having troubles, look up, but maybe it's better to look down. Think of yourself seated in the heavenlies and are the trials and the troubles of this world really that bad when you consider where we are positionally seated with Christ at the right hand of God in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2, 6. He shares his glory. Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And finally, he shares his purpose. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. John 14, 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Isn't this an amazing chapter, Isaiah 53? And when you look at this chapter and we, we concentrate or we meditate, as Jean was saying last night, on all that Jesus has done for us, how can we not follow him on that path to victory? You know, there was a time in my life many years ago um, where you can come in. Welcome, just find a seat. There was a time in my life many years ago where circumstances made me very spiritually depressed. I was really, really struggling with things. And in the middle of that darkness, I continued to function as a human being. I continued to function as a wife, as a mother, as a Sunday school teacher, as a pastor's wife, involved in the church activities and all of those things. But inside, I just felt desolate. I just felt desolate. And I prayed and I prayed for deliverance. I prayed and prayed that God would help me overcome what I was feeling. I prayed and prayed for a change in circumstances. And it seemed as I looked around the body of Christ that I would see God helping so many other people. I would see God healing so many other people. I would see God answering the prayers of so many other people. 
And then I thought there must be something about me that he cannot do those things for me. I know he loves me, but there must be something about my life, something about my heart or soul that is preventing him from helping. I went to the mailbox one day and I opened up the mailbox and I took out a letter that was back in the days when people actually wrote letters. <laughs> and I remember being up on the street, we were living on the side of a house in Arkansas and I remember being up there on the road and I opened that letter on the road and it was from somebody that I had never even met. And the gist of the letter was, why don't you fall in love with Jesus Christ? And there was something powerful in that letter. You know, we never know one, one spoken word, one prayer, one moment of encouragement, how that can change a person's life. And it was like there was just a fresh wind of hope that came over my heart. And I quit focusing on the circumstances and I didn't feel desolate anymore because I was focusing on Jesus Christ and his love for me. And in time, God did answer those prayers. And in time, God did change those circumstances. And so when I ever, you know, start feeling like my mind goes back to those bad memories, Lamentations 3 delivers me. And this Isaiah 53 delivers me because Jesus walked that path before me so that I could walk a path of victory. Turn to Isaiah chapter 61, and this will be our last passage. In this one, we are going to find Jesus is the great physician of the soul. As you turn to it, just remember his loving kindness. Remember that he has walked that path before us of victory. And in this one, the principle we're looking at is that Jesus is the great physician of our soul. Verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Or the New International Version says, for the display of his splendor. Now, in the near sense, this was speaking of Isaiah, but in the prophetic sense, it was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in his first public preaching, after being baptized, after 40 days of uh, fasting in the wilderness, after being tempted by the devil, he stood up and in public, uh, in public, the books were handed to him and he opened them to Isaiah 61 and he read this passage. And then he said, this day, this passage has been fulfilled in your presence, declaring himself to be the person spoken of in these verses. He is the great physician of our soul. So this is the mission objective of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he came to deliver the, the lost, to give us salvation. He came to be a servant, not to be served, but he also came to heal broken hearts. This is his, his job description. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. If the Lord Jesus Christ in perfect humanity, perfect deity relied on the spirit of God, how much more do we need to be led and filled by the spirit 
How much more do we need him in our life? He was able to do this because the Spirit of God had anointed him and was upon him to bring good news to the afflicted. This is the good news of the gospel, first salvation. But then he, it says he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And I just want to, to ooh, sorry, I just want to tell you what a few of these words mean. This word brokenhearted, it's not like, like if you picture a heart, like let's just picture a heart. It's not like there's a crack or there's a break in two or three pieces. It means totally shattered, totally shattered. Can you bind up something that's totally shattered? God can, Jesus can. And then the word he has sent me, he has sent me like an arrow. And I like to think of it this way, that the nails pierced his hands, the nails pierced his feet, our sins pierced the heart of Jesus. But what happens in return? He takes his arrow of healing and he pierces our broken heart and he binds it up. That means to bandage tightly, to bring about a process of healing. Now, is physical healing ever instant? No, if you have a wound, it takes time. If you have a disease or a sickness, it takes time. Can we expect spiritual or emotional healing to be instant? I don't think so. There may be some immediate change as I spoke about earlier with that letter, but true healing takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of focus on the Lord. It takes a lot of his arrows piercing our heart. But when we seek that and we surrender to that, it does start a healing process. And that's the job description of our Jesus to heal our shattered hearts. And he's so good at it, isn't he? He's so good at it. I'm sure there are many, many stories here that could be shared of his work, healing broken hearts. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, those who are in bondage to sin or to wickedness. And that can happen too, can it? I didn't cover the issue in Genesis chapter three, but you know, with, there's, there's also that that um, situation between a man and a woman where the man wants to rule over or control a woman, control her volition, control her soul really, rather than give godly love and godly leadership. And there's that part of us that wants to rule over our husband. Did you know that? Did you know it from the word of God or did you know it from experience? <laughs> Both. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, to, <laughs> to proclaim liberty to captives. There's a lot of ways that we can be in bondage to certain emotions, bondage to wickedness, or in bondage to sin in our life. We need to be really sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. Because as Jean said last night, I think he said this last night, if God brings it to your mind that it needs to be corrected, get busy on it. Don't delay. Get busy on it. He is there to deliver us from captivity and freedom to prisoners, to comfort all who mourn. Second Corinthians chapter one says that he is the God of all comfort and he is able to comfort us with whatever comfort we need. You know, it's interesting. You often think about, man, you know, I heard somebody went through something and I could just never endure that. Well, you never could until the time comes to endure it. 
You think you can't endure it because you don't have the grace given to you by God to endure it at the time. But if he decides to allow you, if he decides to either lead you through it or allow you to be brought through it, his grace is sufficient. His comfort is sufficient. And I'm so happy to see you shake your head because you know. She's been grieving for two years now, right? Almost two years. But God's comfort is sufficient. His grace is sufficient at the time to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Now, who did we see that was dressed in ashes at the beginning of our study? Tamar was, a sign of mourning. And he says, no, let's, let's wash away the ashes and let's put a beautiful garland on you. Beautiful flowers, so to speak, fragrant aroma because of the healing of your heart. And I don't think that ever happened for Tamar, but it can happen for us because Jesus is the great physician of our soul. Giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. See, we do get to be happy in this class. We started out with desolation, but we're ending up with beauty. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. The fainting refers to when we feel hopeless, and yet here we have a mantle of praise instead of that spirit of fainting so they will be called oaks of righteousness. What is an oak? What kind of a tree is an oak? It's a strong tree, a very big tree, a tree that gives shade and life to birds and squirrels and all of those things. Picture yourself as that great big oak, strong because the Lord has made you stable. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. The greatest, one of the greatest ways that we can bring glory to our Lord and Savior, and I know that you all want to, is to let him heal your heart. If you remain a victim, he loses the glory. And this life is the only opportunity that we have to give glory to him. Once we die and we are in eternity, that opportunity is over. He wants to make us oaks of righteousness He wants to be glorified in our life through the healing of our heart. My mother's mother, my grandmother, was born in 1876. And when she was born, someone, that's the centennial birthday of United States of America. When she was born, someone gave her this beautiful glass platter. And it said, United States of America, July 4th, 1776, July 4th, 1876, and had a picture of the Liberty Bell, and it was beautiful. And of course, when my grandmother died, my mother had it. And then in 1976, our firstborn came into the world, Emily's father, 1976. So my mother had this 100-year-old platter, and she gave it to me for Carson. She said, you hold on to this. This is going to be his, because he was born on the bicentennial year of the United States of America. So I had it displayed. And then when Carson was, you know, two, three years old, toddling around the room, I thought, if I don't get this thing put up, he's going to break it. So I wrapped it up in a blanket and I put it on a high shelf in our closet so that it would be safe. And then one night living in Arkansas, in the middle of the night, it got really, really cold. And I got up to get a blanket out of the closet and I reached up to pull down that blanket and that platter fell out and shattered all over my bathroom floor. It didn't break like this, like this, or two or three pieces. I mean, it shattered. There was no way that 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 platter could be put back together. 
such a precious thing, gone. And sometimes we feel like our heart is shattered like that. That platter could never be put together, but we know the miracle worker. He can put together anything that has been shattered, and he does for his glory. The strongest woman is the woman that has been battered or shattered and put back together by the miracle worker, Jesus. And that's the women that we want to be. Amen. Amen. Anne, would you close in prayer? Thank you. Father God, you are so amazing, and we're so grateful to you for your plan. We're so thankful for Jesus Christ, who is the great healer of our soul. He heals the brokenness and the hurt that goes on. But we thank you that you... um, that you love us that much. We thank you that um, you give us the victory through your son. We're so grateful for that. Thank you for Nan and her beautiful teaching, and thank you for these ladies. We just pray that uh, as we go throughout the rest of the day that we would all be mindful of your great love for us and our love for one another. And Father, I just ask that as Jean presents later today Mm -hmm. that um, he would... Um, be given your words that you want him to speak and that we would see Jesus. We thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.